Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. I'm John Lancaster, and as always, I'm joined by Matt McKenna. Matt, how's everything over there? I'm great. Just uh, very excited once again for a great guest. Yes, we are extremely excited to have on the podcast today, Medea Benjamin, who's the co-founder of the woman-led peace group Code Pink and also the co-founder of the human rights group Global Exchange. She's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize and also has been awarded numerous other prizes, including the Martin Luther King Jr. Peace Prize from the Fellowship of Reconciliation, Peace Prize by the U.S. Peace Memorial, and also the Gandhi Peace Award. She's also the author of 10 books, including Drone Warfare, Killing by Remote Control, and also Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. She also has a ton of articles that appear regularly in The Guardian, The Huffington Post, The Hill, amongst others. We are so excited to have on the podcast today, Medea Benjamin. Medea, thank you so much for taking the time today. Great to be on with both of you. I look forward to it. Us as well. So we always like to to kind of get the background of our guests as kind of like the first question. And you, you know, you are known internationally to be a leading peace movement icon. Uh, so what, like in your background story, what led you to, to be such a fierce anti-war activist? Well, let me first say I'm not an icon for anybody. <laughs> you are to uh, us. Just a, a peace activist and... Um, I, uh, I think you'd appreciate as high school teachers, my story of how I got involved because I was in high school and it was during the time of the Vietnam war. My sister who was two years older than me had a boyfriend who was, uh, the, I can't, he was on the football team. Uh, he was a quarterback. He was a very all American kind of guy, uh, nice guy. He got drafted and went off to Vietnam, and he would write her these letters, and they would be stranger and stranger every month. And about six months into him being there, he sent her this package in the mail that had the ear of a Viet Cong uh, on, a, uh, on a string that was supposed to be a necklace for her. And I thought this was the most disgusting thing I'd ever seen. I went to the bathroom and threw up, and there and then started researching what the heck this was all about and started organizing anti-war protests in my school. And um, we had at that time, we were able to hook up with anti-war groups. I was outside of New York City. I was in Long Island. Uh, so hooked up with various different anti-war groups and really uh, it, it was impressed on me at an early age that you can't trust the government you can't believe what they say, especially in wartime, and that it's in the interests of some people in power to make you hate other people that you have no reason to hate, and that you shouldn't believe that. And uh, I've held that position ever since. So that's how I got started. Well, first of all, that 
that's uh, I think you're you're shortchanging yourself because uh, aside from that great start, you you've uh, carried on this legacy of, as far as I can tell, you've opposed almost every U.S. war since the Vietnam War. Uh, especially doing some great work around in the more recent years around, not so recent now, but the war in Iraq, which of course is still going on, the war in Afghanistan, the sanctions on Iran. So it's it's not only just started with Vietnam, but just been this continuous trend in the decades since, which is admirable. Uh, what I want to talk about is something that drew me to your group and you specifically is the level of bravery that you've shown in some of the confrontations you've had with some well-known political figures. And I should preface that by saying, no, none of this is violent. You know, I, I believe Code Pink is a nonviolent organization. Absolutely. But, but in this era where people kind of had this fetishization of, of uh, decency and, and civility, it seems like Code Pink goes out of its way to put themselves in situations that could be potentially dangerous and, and really admirable confrontations of political figures who are, you know, in our estimations, probably war criminals like Elliot Abrams, like Henry Kissinger, like Barack Obama. I think that that's my favorite clip with you screaming at Barack Obama. Well, really just demanding answers for questions. And I just want to know, like, how did you develop such a courage to put yourself in those situations? And, and of course, we never see the aftermath. Like, what happens after? What is it like being in those situations where you're confronting these ex- most powerful people in the world? Let's call it what it is. And then what happens afterward? I mean, obviously, you, you've, you've managed to stay free this whole time. But what is that like? Well, Matthew, when you talked about having um, my uh, continuum from Vietnam to the present, it's having actually visited a lot of the places where the U.S. is either directly at war or funding proxy wars. I spent years in Africa when countries that were uh, colonial countries were trying to liberate themselves and were just beautiful examples of how to do that and bring the people into this new vision and then saw the U.S., together with South Africa, in those cases, crushing these um, liberation movements and liberation governments in places like Mozambique, uh, Guinea-Bissau, Angola. Uh, I was in Zimbabwe, Namibia. And uh, then I spent time in Central America and saw the same kind of thing happening of the U.S. government trying to stop any chances at a new model of government that was more equitable, that was more just. And then we had the case of Chile, where I was around during that time in 1973, when the U.S. overthrew the government of Salvador Allende. And you mentioned Kissinger, who was a big part of that. Uh, And so I saw firsthand what my government was doing. And it's one thing to read about it, and it's another thing to see how communities are destroyed. And I've been to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Syria, uh, and it's uh, just heartbreaking. So when I do things like interrupt Barack Obama, it's because I'm really channeling the people that I've met. In the case of Barack Obama, for example, It was at this uh, war college where he was giving a talk and I managed to get myself in. And sometimes I just amaze that I do get myself into these places. And I had recently come back from Yemen and uh, 
in Afghanistan, and I had met with victims of U.S. drone strikes, and I met with the family in Yemen of a 16-year-old um, Ab- Abdul Rahman Alawaki who had been murdered by Barack Obama through drone strikes when he was out uh, at an outdoor uh, eating place with his friends. Uh, he was never accused of anything. He was not involved in any kind of terrorist activities, but he was the son of somebody that the U.S. had wanted, and so they murdered him. So I was really determined to ask the president about these cases. But I must say, it's not easy to do these things. You know, there's one side of you that's saying, go ahead, do it. You got to do it. You know, remember Abdul Rahman, remember his grandfather. Um, and another voice inside your head saying, don't do that. This is the president of the United States. This is the U.S. Congress. This is the Senate. You're going to get in big trouble. Um, there are other ways to do this kind of thing. And then, you know, I realized there aren't, uh, for me anyway. So uh, I, I, in the case of, of Obama, got up and asked him directly about the case of a 16-year-old American citizen killed by U.S. drones. And how could he, as a constitutional lawyer, justify that? And um, I also asked him about Guantanamo. I have not been to Guantanamo myself. Well, I actually have. I've been there protesting outside the gates of Guantanamo, uh, but I haven't been inside. But I just have been uh, horrified by the fact that we've kept these people in prison, sometimes now for almost 20 years, without trials. And so I asked him about that, too, as a constitutional lawyer. How can he justify keeping people in prison without giving them a trial? And in in that case, unlike some other cases, it was really funny because he started responding to me. And we actually were having a conversation. And uh, I was surrounded by people who wanted to arrest me and were saying, you know, here's my badge. Come with me. You're under arrest. And I said to them, shh, I'm having a conversation with the president, (laughs) which allowed me to have more time to go on. Uh, What happens to me when I do these things or other people from Code Pink? It depends. If we're doing it in Congress, we usually get arrested. And then um, it depends what number arrested is. If it's your first time, it's a fine. If it's your second time, it's a little more difficult. If it's your third time, you might have to spend um, uh, overnight in jail and then go back for trials that then drag out and you're on probation and you can't go back into the Senate for uh, the time until you have your trial. And it really does uh, make it difficult to keep on doing this work. And much of our work is not these interruptions, but it's actually meetings inside of Congress and not having access to our uh, representatives is a big obstacle. In the case of uh, interrupting the president, it was so interesting because when they took me away, they said, you're under arrest. And I totally assumed I was being arrested. And then after interrogating me, they said, all right, uh, do you have a car here? Are you? And I said, yeah. And I thought, well, maybe they were going to pound my car or something. They said, okay, well, we'll take you to your car and you're free to go. And I was astounded by it. And I actually think that maybe it was the president himself who said that he didn't want me arrested, which is pretty cool. 
Well, that's certainly a, a better reaction than some of the videos that I've seen. Um, but some, one thing I think is worth noting is maybe Barack Obama, uh, we don't really know what goes on in his head. Uh, you know, it, I, I've heard, seen a lot of quotes from his book. I'm not reading it myself, but it almost comes off as sociopathic at times. But but it is nice to hear that he he, he maybe had a role in letting you off the hook. But it is worth noting that when you mentioned Abdurrahman al-Awaki, I believe it was one of Obama's surrogates, maybe Robert Gibbs, that said something to the effect of he should have had a more responsible father when when questioned about it. But I do want to ask you about just one thing that was was said about you and your your and more broadly code pink uh i believe it was john mccain that that called that referred to you and code pink as low life scum and you know this is when you're demanding for the arrest of henry kissinger who you know low end is responsible for a couple of million people being killed and of course john mccain was no angel himself despite what you might hear on msnbc or cnn so what did that how did you react in retrospect to being called low life scum by by john mccain himself well we had a great interruption of that hearing where we got up right to the front and John McCain was embarrassed because we were literally next to Kissinger dangling handcuffs in his face. And we were there uh, uh, talking about all the things that he was responsible. We were saying, you know, in the name of the people of Chile, in the name of the people of Laos, Cambodia, uh, Vietnam. And uh, we uh, and it took quite a while, which is unusual in those circumstances, for the police to get us all out of there. And so we managed to keep the interruption going for a while. And I think because uh, John McCain was so embarrassed with his great statesman Kissinger being confronted like that, that he said, um, I've never seen anything like this in my entire time in Congress. And then he called us low life scum, which in retrospect, we thought was quite funny. And we took it as a compliment and we went around calling each other low life scum for quite a while. Uh, But I think it was one of our better interruptions in that we really got to um, get very close and got to get out the issues, which we want to get out to people. Why are we protesting these people? It's not just because we uh, want attention And we do want attention, but we want attention to the issues. And, you know, we were saying in that case, there's so many people that could come before Congress to give us good advice on what our foreign policy should be like, not somebody who has a history of horrific military interventions. Yeah, and it's it's so important, again, and I feel like we have so many conversations with guests as well where... These, you know, the issues, the actual issues aren't really being discussed and it's so frustrating. So we're, we're happy that, you know, you're making points to make them discussed. Um, and the other thing is we really, you know, personally, I, Matt and I were chatting right before you joined in, but really admire, you almost bring the peace movement to these, you were mentioning all the countries that you've been to and like really going to the next stage and bringing peace movements or, or the peace movement to these other countries as well, as opposed to just staying in the United States. But we want to pivot to an issue that you've been a large advocate for, and that's Palestinian rights. And just about two weeks ago, Mike Pompeo, on his visit to the West Bank, called the BDS movement anti-Semitic. And you do a, a particularly great job at um, at separating the ideas of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. So we'd love for you to kind of elaborate on that. Yeah, a number of us uh, at Code Pink are 
Jewish, and we think it's very important as uh, people from the Jewish faith to be standing up for the rights of all peoples, and that includes Palestinians. I myself had my first experience uh, recognizing the treatment of Palestinians when I was a very young woman and went to live in a kibbutz where my parents had sent me. I was 16 years old and it was during the, uh, right after the 67 war. And the kibbutz was lovely, socialist, beautiful, wonderful, idyllic in so many ways, except they hated Arabs. And uh, learning about that hatred and the hatred of the Palestinians really opened my eyes at a very young age. Although it was the one thing that my parents were very sensitive about. And so I worked on so many other issues and kind of said, well, you know, other people can work on that issue uh, until I realized that, no, that's a, a key issue that I have to uh, talk to my family about, I have to confront, and I have to make this clear that it is not anti-Jewish, it is not anti-Semitic to be pro-Palestinian rights. And it's terrible to see what you just said about Mike, Mike Pompeo now saying that those who engage in the long tradition in the United States of boycotts uh, against injustices are now being labeled anti-Semitic. And we think the BDS movement is a very legitimate form of protest. And that any way that we can non-violently make the case for the U.S. to stop supporting the Israeli apartheid regime is something we must do. We don't believe that there's any possibility of two-state solution anymore, that that has long gone with all the settlements, but that that's not our issue. Uh, our issue is really about equal rights, equal rights for Palestinians, equal rights for uh, the Jewish people living in Israel, equal rights for uh, Christians, equal rights for everybody. And we uh, have led many delegations to Gaza over the years. We can't get there now because the Egyptians closed it off, but previously we could go there. And we were just horrified by the way that the people of Gaza were treated. Not only are there these horrific uh, uh, occupation of the West Bank, but there's also the ongoing siege of Gaza where almost to about 2 million people are living uh, under, uh, in an in, in a open air prison is a good way to describe it, where they have no control over their borders, by land, by sea, uh, by uh, the ocean, and they are now uh, facing a pandemic. And we try as much as we can to get the stories out from people inside uh, the West Bank, from people in Gaza, and let people hear directly from them. And again, as high school teachers, I think you recognize how important it is to hear those stories and especially from young people, to see and hear Palestinians talking about the way they are being forced to live. And I think when people hear those stories, they understand that this is not speaking out against Jewish people. This is speaking out against the Jewish state. 
And of course, uh, there are no shortage of Jewish Americans who support Palestine and support Palestinian rights. And it's just such a clever trick. I almost think it's a trick used to to squash a healthy debate about this subject. Not that it should even be a debate. It's about as much a debate as we should be ha- we should have been having about South Africa, which, of course, the United States track record on was also terrible. Uh, but what we'd like to ask you about is you've also done great work in terms of not just opposing war, but opposing something that many people think is not war, which is sanctions. Can can you just break this down for us? What, what are sanctions and, and why is it that... A, I mean, what, how is it that Americans have come to believe that sanctions are some form of light of, uh, of alternative option to war? Uh, and is that actually true, that sanctions are uh, some kind of peaceful alternative? Uh, and we'd love to get your opinion on that. Sanctions are, uh, well, it depends what sanctions. I mean, there can be sanctions against uh, individuals and, you know, that might be okay. Uh, it's sanctions against entire countries that affect the entire population that are a form of collective punishment. And this is being done more under this Trump administration than most, but it's something that has happened earlier. For example, the sanctions against Iraq uh, uh, during the 1990s were horrific and led to the death of hundreds of thousands of children. The sanctions now against Iran uh, are keeping Uh, medicines away from people during a pandemic. The sanctions against Venezuela are keeping food uh, away uh, during a a pandemic uh, and keeping the countries from being able to export their resources so that their governments have money to help the people out during a pandemic. And then you look at the case of Cuba that has been under some form of sanctions for the last 60 years. And oftentimes what the U.S. does is impose its sanctions on the rest of the world. Say to the rest of the world, you can't trade with Iran if you ever want to have any business with the United States. And let's face it, the U.S. has the largest economy, the U.S. and China. Uh, but when a company or a bank uh, are faced with the option of doing business with Cuba or doing business in the United States, which one are they going to pick? So it makes it these unilateral sanctions become extraterritorial sanctions. And the U.S. has been imposing them in a brutal kind of way during these four years of the Trump administration. In one way or another, about a third of humanity is now under some form of U.S. sanctions, with the most severe ones being Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, and then after that, I would say Syria and Nicaragua. Uh, And it goes on, including countries like Zimbabwe. It's the height of imperial hubris to think that the United States can dictate to the entire globe um, who they can and can't trade with, and then try to impose it. I mean, they've even stolen Venezuelan oil in the high seas like pirates. Uh, They get away with this uh, because might makes right in our world today. But we should never, never think of these kind of coercive sanctions that affect entire populations as a, uh, a better form of intervention. 
because they oftentimes kill people more than military interventions. In fact, studies that have been done in Venezuela say that there's over 100,000 people who have been killed in Venezuela because of the sanctions. And then the U.S. turns around and, I mean, it's all part of regime change because the idea is that you make the life of ordinary people so miserable that they blame their government and they try to overthrow their government. Well, we've seen how U.S. regime change has uh, the consequences of it uh, throughout the Middle East in the last 20 years, and it's made things um, uh, multiple times um, worse than what they had before. And so there are many people who look around and say, well, we might not like our government, say in Iran. I don't like our government, uh, certainly don't like the effect of sanctions, but what is the alternative? It would be probably civil war, chaos, um, and uh, more people dying. So the fact that the U.S. tries to put countries and people in these untenable situations uh, is really something that the American people don't understand. And I would hope that if they did understand it better, would be uh, horrified that our government is intentionally trying to make the lives of millions of innocent people miserable. Right. And it, you're so right. It's it's totally this um, imperial project, these these sanctions, because ju- just think about it on the other foot. No Americans would think first we need to overthrow our government if some other government was preventing our children from having medicine, preventing us from eating, preventing us from having uh, from sick people getting med- medical supplies. And, and by the way, it's gotten worse during the pandemic. There is a moved uh you know, a petition of some members of Congress to end sanctions, at least during the pandemic, which, of course, Trump wouldn't sign on to. But even Joe, not even Joe Biden himself wouldn't sign on to it. And, you know, before I push to John, because we are on the subject of Joe Biden or we're going to move to it, you know, people need to remember that sanctions on Iraq, which killed, I think, minimum 500,000 people, which which uh, uh, Madeleine Albright thought was worth the price. You can watch the 60 Minutes interview I'll link to. It is no small secret that Osama bin Laden was partially motivated by those sanctions that killed anywhere from 500,000 to a million Iraqi children. And, you know, it's like we we seem to understand our violence as retribution for acts committed against Americans, but it never seems to work the other way when we we uh, commit this mass violence against other people and then expect them just we it's like we never forget, but we expect you to. Uh, but John, move on to Biden. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we were talking about Trump using sanctions as, again, a weapon of war, really. Um, or at least, you know, a, a, a policy that kills hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and now with the with the incoming Biden administration, we wanted to ask some, some concerns you might have about Bi- both Biden himself and his track record, but also some of Biden's potential or already uh, done cabinet picks? Well, first, it is quite remarkable, and I think, Matthew, you were bringing this up in uh, terms of the U.S. people having uh, no sense of our own destructive forces or any sense of the need for accountability. If we had the accountability, no one who supported the most, uh, the greatest boondoggle in modern history, which was the invasion of Iraq, 
would be rewarded for that and certainly not by becoming president of the United States. And that's where we stand with Joe Biden. Uh, he was certainly not my choice for uh, the Democratic Party. And I still have a hard time believing that it's not a, uh, an outright ban on higher office if you were a supporter and in many ways a cheerleader for that war. But here we are, we have Biden coming in and he has been involved in the U.S. endless wars under the Obama administration. Uh, he's been involved in the U.S. sale of weapons to Saudi Arabia. And then it was under uh, Obama's time that the U.S. began to support the Saudi-led war in Yemen, which has been so horrific. So Biden does not have a great track record. On the other hand, there were a couple of good foreign policy achievements under the Obama years that Biden has said that he wants to go back to. And the most important of them is rejoining the Iran nuclear deal, the deal that that uh, Trump withdrew from in 2018 when he then imposed these horrific sanctions that we've been talking about. So there was just an interview with Biden in the New York Times that uh, where Biden came out and said very clearly he wants to go back to the Iran deal, that he's not going to put new conditions on going back into that deal. Uh, the idea is it would be, quote, compliance for compliance, which means that as the at the same time, the U.S. would go back into the deal and Iran would go back into compliance as well. So it's heartening to know that he plans to do that. Now, it's not a done deal for two reasons. One is that Biden will place uh, be uh, under other pressures when he gets into office, one being the Israel lobby that is so strong in the United States called APAC. And the other is the um, just the, the, the war machine in the United States that um, uh, feels that we should be using force against Iran instead of negotiations. And then there is uh, our... There are our, quote, friends in the region, the Israelis who don't want to see the U.S. going back. And we can see this recent assassination of the uh, Iranian nuclear scientist as part of a plan by the Israelis to make it more difficult for Biden to go back into that deal. Uh, we have the Saudis who don't want the U.S. to go back into the deal. And then we have Iran itself. Now, it's easy to understand the view of the hardliners in Iran who say, why should we go back into a deal with the United States when the United States showed that it does not keep its word? And so we also see that countries that have nuclear weapons are safer than we are. So let's just get out of this nuclear deal, build ourselves a nuclear weapon, and that will be our deterrence. So there are more and more people inside Iran thinking like that. There were parliamentary elections not long ago in which the more conservative people got the majority. There will be presidential elections in Iran in June. And so there is a very small window between the time that Biden gets in in late January and the elections in June to try to make this deal uh, happen. 
Um, so I say it as, as not a sure thing, meaning that uh, we should be pushing hard for this to be top, top on Biden's priority list. The other thing we think should be at the very top is stopping the U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. And it is so devastating to know that our government has prioritized the profits of Northrop Grumman and Raytheon and General Dynamics and uh, the, uh, the weapons industry over the lives of the people in the region and have both under Obama and now under Trump uh, been bragging about the huge weapons sales to Saudi Arabia. Now that Saudi Arabia has been uh, destroying the country of Yemen, there's been a big outcry to stop that. And one that has been quite successful in a bipartisan effort that actually went, got through Congress, including the, the Senate, uh, the Republican controlled Senate, but was vetoed by um, Trump saying, we don't want to continue uh, to support this war. That has to be really up at the top of the list for Joe Biden. And there again, there are sort of the same forces that I talked about in the Iran deal are, are, are uh, arrayed against uh, the U.S. pullout um, in, in Yemen. And so we have to be careful about that, introduce it right up front, both something that Biden can do on his own through executive powers, but also have it go through the Congress again with what's called the War Powers Resolution uh, so that there's a, a, a double a secure way to say we will not participate in this war. So those are the, the two good things that I think could come about with Biden. And then the rest is going to be very hard. And the rest meaning getting the U.S. out of Afghanistan, of Iraq, Syria, um, support for the ongoing war in Libya, getting the U.S., uh, to not look towards China as the next enemy, which is a huge issue that justifies the an endless buildup of the Pentagon budget. So when you look at that, <laughs> there's the issue of appointments, right? That's uh, what you were bringing up, Jonathan. Uh, should we talk about... The, the worst? Well, I, I, we do want to get to that, but there's also a lot that you just said there. And, and, and you're making it very clear that at least in, in my interpretation of what you're saying and, and just from what I've read in general, it's the U.S. seems to be obsessed with Iran and it has been ever since the 1979 revolution. And I think what, what we try to convey here is no, it has nothing to do with human rights. It has nothing to do with even developing nuclear weapons. It has to do with the fact that Iran is disobedient and they, they overthrew the U.S. puppet in the Shah. And with regards to the nuclear deal, it's great that it is great that Obama did the nuclear deal, but because it, it put us in a direction of peace. Now, we, we had Gareth Porter on a few weeks ago, and he, he basically says that Iran, all the allegations about the nuclear program, nuclear weapons program were always overblown. And there's been no such thing since 2003. But even so, like like you're pointing to, Iran would not be irrational to develop a nuclear bomb. I think people really need to understand that. Like, think about how imperial it is that the United States gets to dictate to other countries. You know, the United States 
the only country to ever use nuclear weapons gets to tell Iran in the past Iraq, Libya, uh, now currently telling North Korea that they can't have nuclear weapons when Israel has nuclear weapons. They're the only country in the Middle East with them. France has nuclear weapons. India, Pakistan, India, Pakistan, and and Israel aren't even part of the of the non proliferation treaty. Uh, neither is North Korea, but it only gets weaponized against North Korea though, if we ever notice. So I think we listeners just need to realize like how ridiculous it is that the United States gets to tell anyone what kind of weapons they have and gets to tell anyone how their government should function. Um, and I, I know I, I just get carried away with that stuff. And even the stuff in Yemen is still, and Syria is of course related to Iran. And uh, that's right. And, and I think it's, it's really good. You bring that up. And I try to bring that up all the time and say, you know, how many we- nuclear weapons does Israel have? And people guess, you know, and I say, well, we don't know. We don't know because Israel won't tell us and they don't allow international inspections in. And why is it that Israel is allowed to get away with that, whereas Iran has the most intrusive inspections regime ever devised and it's still not good enough? So, yeah, important to bring out those double standards and, of course, the double standards that the U.S. has more nuclear weapons than any other country in the world. And then on top of that... Um, to be recognizing that um, we want to have a world that is rid of nuclear weapons. So it's not like we want Iran to get nuclear weapons or anywhere else. Uh, and Iran has, uh, has um, advocated for a nuclear-free Middle East, which is a great thing that we should all be working towards. And it would be nice if the same standards that are being applied to Iran were applied to all of the countries in the Middle East. And the last thing I want to say about that, since we did talk about Israel, uh, these, quote, peace treaties that Jared Kushner has been pushing and how that has just been part of a new arms race in the Middle East with now the United Arab Emirates, which was one of the countries that signed this, quote, peace accord, uh, having a $23 billion weapons deal with the United States to sell F-35s, to sell the most advanced kind of drones, to sell uh, tens of thousands of bombs to them. And this is a, quote, reward for uh, signing a peace deal. Uh, but what does this say to Iran? This says to Iran, you better get more weapons. Uh, and it it is um, a, it, as part of selling these weapons to the Emirates, then Israel comes back and says, well, you know that you have a commitment to us that we always have to have the qualitative military edge over any other country in the region. So if you're selling these high-tech weapons to the Emirates, then you got to sell it, you got to give us, because we don't sell them to Israel, uh, even more high-tech weapons. So we are in the midst of a new arms race in the Middle East, thanks to these um, agreements that have been under the, the, the guise of peace accords and seen as positive, not just by uh, the Trump administration, but by Joe Biden himself. Yeah. And, and some of these, you know, some of the arms races and dictating who gets what might get might not get much better under a Biden administration. I know we were we started almost we touched upon the cabinet picks. I think you said, should we start with the worst? I'll let you go with who the worst is and why. Well, the worst is important to talk about because there's still a chance to stop her. And uh, as a feminist organization, Code Pink really thinks it's important to define 
uh, feminism. And it's not about having women in positions of power, like the women who now control uh, four of the five largest weapons companies in the United States, or having a woman as the head of the Pentagon. For us, that's not a uh, achievement to be touting as a great shattering of the glass ceiling. Um, That is something that uh, we say it's not about the gender, it's about what the plans are. And in the case of Michelle Flournoy, who is seen to be the still the most uh, likely pick of the Biden administration as Secretary of Defense, um, it's interesting that she hasn't been picked yet, that we have helped create a controversy around this by bringing up all of the horrible things about Michelle Flournoy. And I want your listeners to know, to put them into two categories. One is her policies, since she's been in government since the time of the Clinton administration in the Pentagon, and then in the Pentagon again under Obama. There she supported every single war that the U.S. was involved in, and in in fact wanted more aggressive wars. She supported the surge in Afghanistan that Biden was against. She supported the war in Libya that Biden was against. Um, She supported a more aggressive policy in Iraq and Syria. She called for regime change and more U.S. troops on the ground there. Uh, Then she also was in support of selling weapons to Saudi Arabia once Saudi Arabia was involved in the war in Yemen. Only recently, because of the criticism against her, she's come out and said, well, she would only support selling defensive weapons, not offensive weapons. And anybody who really knows the arm business knows that there's uh, there's really not a lot of difference between them because if you build up the defensive weapons, then you're telling Saudi's adversaries they have to build up their offensive weapons. And um, the so and the, the last thing in terms of her actions are around China, where she has called for the U.S. to build up its uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, its um, uh, 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 high-tech weaponry, to be able to confront China and to be able to credibly sink all of China's ships in the South China Sea in a period of 72 hours. Um, She believes that the U.S. has the right to use force in order to secure strategic U.S. markets or resources. And um, she believes in the uh, major buildup of U.S. weaponry in the Pentagon as a form of, quote, deterrence. So we think uh, that her actions speak louder than words and that somebody with that history of being wrong, 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 wrong uh, shouldn't be in charge of the Pentagon. But the other thing to bring up is the revolving door issue in that she's just a remarkable example of somebody who's gone in and out of government and profited from it, either either from starting hawkish uh, think tanks herself uh, that get money from weapons industries and other governments like the Saudi government, uh, or consulting firms that are uh, the ones she started called West Exec Advisors, touting the fact that you could get, you're going to get the inside people who know the Pentagon and can help grease the wheels for you to get 
these lucrative Pentagon contracts. She sits on the board of another uh, contractor organization of Booz uh, uh, Allen Hamilton. Uh, and she and and they get money. Uh, one of their clients is Saudi Arabia. Uh, so she has a history of being part of firms that profit from the war machine. And the Pope called them these kind of people merchants of death. And I would say that Michelle Flor and I really fits in that category of merchants of death and that we should do everything we can to stop her being appointed by Biden. And we can do that by calling our senators and saying no to Michelle Flournoy. And if she does get appointed to try to stop her confirmation again by contacting our senators and telling them not to support her. Yeah, Michelle Flournoy, definitely a, a huge pro- problematic pick to say the least. And we're both Matt and I are really, really happy that you're raising the issue and making this a public issue um, and raising awareness that this should not happen. You bring up a really interesting point that I want to get to um, in a minute, which is that feminism uh, a piece of it. But are there are there any other potential cabinet picks that you find problematic other than Michelle Flournoy? I would say around national security issues, uh, every single one of them. <laughs> Anthony Blinken for Secretary of State has been part of that uh, cycling back and forth between government and companies that profit from war. Uh, he and Michelle Flournoy started West Exec Advisors together and other people that have been nominated uh, or uh, picked um, like Jen Psaki in communications or Avril Haines uh, have been part of that West, uh, West exec uh, grouping of people who go in and out of government. Uh, then there is Mike Morell, who seems like he might be the CIA pick, who we are very much against. Uh, Jake Sullivan, who has been picked for National Security Advisor, is also part of that same pack of people from the Obama administration that supported the wars. So I would say uh, I don't see anybody who is new, fresh, exciting, opposed U.S. interventionism. It's all part of the same old, uh, Not we don't have to say old boys club because now it includes girls. So old boys and girls club uh, that believes that the U.S. has the right to these interventions. And one more thing I want to say about this, because when we talked about Joe Biden, uh, and the problems that, that, that we see in his record of foreign policy and, and what he's proposing now about multilateralism is good in many ways. We want to rejoin the World Health Organization. We want to uh, be part of the uh, renew the START treaty with Russia. We want to be part of the climate accords. Um, but <clears throat> one of his big uh, multilateral organizations is NATO which is a military organization that should have died after the uh, Cold War was over uh, and is really just a um, uh, an antagonistic organization towards Russia and is involved in Afghanistan and Libya. And it's unfortunate that Biden uh, and Anthony Blinken are very enamored of NATO. And the other thing I think is important to understand is that Joe Biden talks about the U.S. coming back into the world community, not as a humble nation among nations, but as the leader 
the head of the table. That's what he literally says. U.S. back at the head of the table. And for those of us who want a different kind of world where there's not one superpower that tries to dictate to the rest of the world, but wants a multipolar world, um, that is not the kind of mindset that will get us towards uh, this uh, um, uh, lack, uh, a, a different worldview other than the imperialist one. Yeah, and I think especially like going through the list of Biden's either picks or potential picks is really important, especially for our listeners or like so-called progressives who see the Biden win as something revolutionary. It's really problematic and it's not, you know, there's a ton of problems and kind of along those same lines of, you know, of you know so-called progressives being so happy of the Biden win. Something that you mentioned earlier was the the, the feminist uh, a bit, which is a lot of progressives see picks like Michelle Flora and I or Susan Royce or, or excuse me Susan Rice or some others to right exactly to these positions as as you know progress um, and how it's really an interesting uh, question is like how how do we as anti-war activists counter this kind of co-opting of feminism um, with real progressive feminism? Well, we're excited because we're part of two different groups that are coalitions that have formed uh, to promote this idea of feminism, not militarism, and to put forward what does a feminist foreign policy look like? And we've put forward position papers. Uh, we've been trying to engage people in the progressive caucus in Congress uh, to be advising them on what a feminist foreign policy would look like. And a lot of it is the opposite of what I just said, that there should be the U.S. as the global cop at the head of the table, uh, that as feminists, we would sit in a round table and we would be discussing uh, with other countries what uh, and looking at their point of views as well to try to understand uh, how we could um, move from an empire to a democratic country, a republic um, that uses multilateral institutions like the UN uh, in a way that um, puts the emphasis on diplomacy, diplomacy, diplomacy. There are great groups now working, for example, women around the issue of the Korean Peninsula. We were part of a group called Women Cross the DMZ that went to North Korea, uh, met with women's groups there, and then crossed the demilitarized zone in quotes, because it's the most militarized zone in the world, um, to South Korea, meeting with women's groups there and putting the voices of these women forward as the ones who really have the best ideas about how to bring peace to the Korean Peninsula. And I think it's a, a great model of how to, uh, as America, as women in the United States, uh, organize in support of the Korean American community here and in support of Koreans in those two countries uh, to say, here are the people that you should be listening to. Here are the people that should be running the policy uh, when it comes to Korea. And that's just one example. We could do the same uh, when it comes to things like um, like Iran. There are great groups in the United States of Iranian Americans and Iranian American women who are um, brilliant when it comes to what the U.S. should be doing vis-a-vis -vis Iran. And again, those are the kinds of voices that we're trying to lift up. Yeah, and, and I, I do think it's worth 
zooming in on this fact that I don't know, it feels kind of kind of uh, cynical to me the fact that that you have what you have is these these known progressive. Uh, uh, values like having marginalized groups in positions of power. And it just seems to me that like the people who work in the military industrial complex aren't stupid. They understand that they can placate at least some part of the left by putting people, you know, what women, African Americans, Hispanic Americans in these positions of power. And they, I, I assume they think that'll placate the left without making any real, uh, societal change or uh, systemic change to their what are really oppressive institutions that you know war is not a feminist institution war affects women far more than it affects men you know and and, and we can put that we can say that's true for almost every marginalized group is going to be more affected by the war machine i saw the yesterday i i believe joe biden is going to nominate an african-american to head the cia but it's like the CIA is not is not an institution of racial progress. The CIA is is, if anything, a fascistic organization that has always thwarted uh, uh, decolonization movements around the world. So it's just you know I just see this as being ex- extremely cynical in its in its motives. Um, but sorry, I, this next question, speaking of cynical, is not on our list. But I know you've alluded to it a few times. Um, this is a question of human rights and the way it gets weaponized. And I, I heard you mention China before, which is probably the biggest uh, a U.S. conflict with China is probably the greatest threat to mankind other than a conflict with Russia. And of course, we could be working with these countries against global threats like climate change and, and the covid panic uh, dis- uh, pandemic. But, you know, we. You hear like the the accusations of Uyghurs in prisons in China or the way that gay people are treated in Iran or or the way that uh, marginalized groups or dissidents are treated in Venezuela. And I, I wonder what you think about how we should view the, the mainstream media's reporting on human rights abuses in these uh, alleged enemy countries. And should we take that kind of concern seriously? Or do you see that as just another tool to promote war, to promote uh, belligerence toward these countries? Unfortunately, the issue of human rights is weaponized by our government and used selectively. Uh, we, we, we'll never hear Donald Trump talk about the uh, women in prison in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but he talks constantly about women in prison in Iran. And um, we are hearing now the U.S. weaponizing a um, group of artists who have been protesting in Cuba very recently. And uh, the U.S. is saying, the Trump administration is saying, oh, we've got to support these peaceful protesters. <laughs> when You know, the U.S. uses tear gas against peaceful protesters and shoots down uh, African-Americans that are unarmed in our city streets on a constant basis. Uh, and unfortunately, we also see now people inside, uh, like Jake Sullivan, who's going to be in Biden's administration, speaking, speaking out in favor of peaceful protests in Cuba when he won't speak out against the assassination of a nuclear scientist in Iran. Um, so yes, it's, it's totally used selectively. That doesn't mean that there aren't human rights abuses in China. There are in Iran, there are, uh, in uh, Venezuela and Cuba, there are. Um, but it means we shouldn't believe what our government is saying and what the mainstream media says. 
but we should be sensitive to those issues um, and hear from groups that we trust in terms of um, the human rights situation and always recognize that if we want to improve human rights, we should improve the U.S. relations with those countries and get off their backs. Because as long as the U.S. is having its boot on the neck of these countries, it's going to make the, uh, the space for dissent smaller and smaller. And that's something to just totally understand. Um, if we lifted the sanctions on Iran, there'd be a lot more room for dissent. The same for Cuba, for Venezuela, for anywhere else. It is, incre- it is incredible, too, the way that we don't realize how our actions against these countries might create more. If you wanted to create a repressive society, well, what would you do? Well, let's take North Korea, for example. Well, you drop uh, 600,000 tons of bombs on the country. You'd kill 3 million people, a fifth of their population. You'd rehearse that same invasion constantly on their border. Um and of course, if you wanted to create a country that was absolutely terrified of outsiders and infiltration, along with uh, you know many other countries that constantly face U.S. infiltration, you'd do exactly what the U.S. has done. And yet, we react to 9/11, not to minimize that tragedy, but we're talking about 3,000 people that died, not millions of people. And we react with a global campaign of of murder, and of course, our own repressive tactics in the United States. So it, it is amazing to me that we never seem to understand how societies might react to external uh, infiltration the way that we have uh, instigated that on other countries. Yeah. And that, that kind of empathy gap that, you know, it's something that Matt and I talk about in our classes a lot. It's like we, for some reason, Americans especially have a hard time putting themselves in other, other countries' shoes when it comes to this stuff. Um, and to recognize that we finance oh, yeah. dissident groups constantly all over the world in countries where we don't like their governments. And that makes it very hard to know what is legitimate dissent and what is just groups that are working at the behest of the United States, which would really be more like mercenaries. Right. Right. Yeah. And I know, I know we are running uh, you know, short on time here and we wanted to ask you, you know, you've done it all from, you know, uh, talking to representatives, to questioning the president, to calling government officials to their face that, you know, they're warm criminals. Um, so we wanted to ask you, you know, what do you recommend people do in terms of like, what are the first steps that people can take towards anti-war activism? What are different ways people and listeners, Americans can oppose U.S. militarism? I would start by saying that anybody who cares about these issues should know who their congressional representative is and know who their two senators are. And not just know them, they should get to know their staff, locally staff, or if you have a chance to visit in Washington, post-pandemic, obviously, um, because that is a channel you have uh, to use, and it's not used enough. It's amazing how many people are activists and don't even know who their representative is. Um, and uh, I tell people to start out taking a, a group. If you're in, in, if you're students, get a group of students together and ask to have a visit with the staff of your representative and make it be a nice visit, but you go and you have questions for them and you say, well, we'd like to get a response. And if you don't get a response or the response is not a good one, then you step it up and you step it up and you might then do a sit-in in their office 
and um, uh, then you might go and join a group in Washington that's going to do a sit-in in their office in D.C. Uh, if you really want to step it up, you might find out where they live and do a wake-up call in the morning. <laughs> Say, wake up, wake up with pots and pans saying, you know, we got to get out of Yemen or whatever the issue is. Um, uh, so that's one area. Uh, not that activism is all around Congress and, and Washington, but that is one area to work in. Um, the other is doing something local on these issues. And even these issues that are so global in nature, there's local things to do. There's passing local resolutions, getting your city or your university or um, your workplace to divest from the war machine. And at Code Pink, we have a whole campaign about that. And that, that's uh, um, a whole, you know, with uh, how to, to kind of um, step by step. And I know you're having David Swanson on and he's done it in his hometown in Charlottesville. Uh, but it's a great way to get these issues in front of uh, local of, uh, elected officials and to make a stand locally that we don't want to be invested in the war machine. Um, those are some of the things I recommend when we're able to travel more, trying to go someplace and learn about it firsthand and meet with groups locally so you get that kind of firsthand experience, which makes you a, a much more credible person on the issues when you come back home. Uh, it also makes you look at your government from a whole different light when you see it from the outside. There's nothing like getting out of our borders uh, to get a much clearer vision on your home. Um, so those are some of the things that I would suggest. Yeah, so funny. I was talking to Matt that I went to Cambodia over last summer. And it was, again, the, the representation of America there, very, very interesting, <laughs> extremely interesting. Um, but Matt, did you have a comment? No, not other than like, oh, those are, those are all great tips. And I really like the idea of showing up to politicians' houses. And, you know, I, I think like, you know, code pinky here, it's, it's nonviolent, which it is, it's a peace group. Uh, and I do think, I, I do think as a society and political discussion, uh, at, at large, we have this fetishization of civility and decency that really is, it's overrated. I, I think that some of these people do need to be confronted. I, you know, you talk about what's civil. Well, you know, sa sanctioning people to death is not civil. Launching these, these never ending wars isn't civil. The least we can do is throw a little incivility in the other direction every once in a while. And you're doing it in a, in a way that is not at all violent or threatening. And I, I think that's really commendable. Absolutely. You know, we went to the home of John Brennan when he was the head of the really? CIA after we got back from Pakistan. MSNBC contributor John Brennan, that is. <laughs> yes, right, right, right. And uh, he, his wife was there and she said, it's so rude of you to come to our home. And we said, we think it's a little more rude to uh, fly drones over people's homes in Pakistan and murder them. Uh, that's rude. And um, we are often accused of being rude, but as you said so beautifully, Matthew, um, it's not rude to try to talk people into seeing how their actions are killing people. And we go to their places of worship as well with signs that says, God says, thou, thou shalt not kill, uh, things like that. And, you know, again, oftentimes saying, why, you can't come to a house of worship. Well, you know, we stand outside oftentimes quietly um, with our signs and with pictures of Yemeni children, that kind of thing. 
Um, but it is important to go to where these people are so they see the opposition. Yeah, and, and all that work is, is so, so important. Um, and I think I think we are out of time, but Medea, we want to thank you so much for coming on today. Again, this is Medea Benjamin, uh, author, peace activist, and co-founder of the woman-led peace group Code Pink and also the human rights group Global Exchange. Check out one of her books or many of her books. They include Drone Warfare, Killing by Remote Control, and also Kingdom of the Unjust behind the U.S.-Saudi connection. Check out and look out for her work that regularly appears in things like The Guardian, The Huffington Post, The Hill, and more. Medea, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. A pleasure. Thank you.